everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 62. I'm Liam and I'm unfortunately uh, by myself in hosting duties this week. Both Lisa and Leanne had to take a week off, but you're lucky. You don't get to just listen to my voice this week. We've got a very special guest joining the show uh, today. Uh, Doreen, welcome to the Early Education Show. Thank you, Liam. It's a pleasure to be here. And I've got to say, Doreen's been a long sought after guest on the show. We've just had a lot of trouble uh, lining it up. And I, I do have to quickly do a big thanks to Doreen for doing this a very late notice. She's literally literally was asked this morning if she was available to uh, to have this chat this morning. So very much appreciate your, uh, your flexibility and being available, Doreen. Not a problem. It's a beautiful evening in Perth. Um, it's nice and warm. There's a breeze. And I'm always up for a chat. So, Doreen, let's get straight into it. We're not going to do our sort of news list and everything this week. I think we just wanted to get straight into the chat with you. So, uh, Doreen, why don't you introduce yourself and, I guess, tell us about your history in the children's services sector. Okay. Well, my name is Doreen Bly and I'm a consultant in education and care leadership. My history in the children's services sector goes back to 1993 um, which was when I took my son into the, um, what we used to call childcare centre. Um, on his third day at the centre, I overheard one of the direct or the director of the centre saying that, I oh, know something called accreditation was coming and she was terrified and thinking of resigning. And I'd just been through it in health because I'm originally a registered nurse and as a throwaway line, but to, you know, in some small way attempt to make her feel better, I said, ah, there's no problem with accreditation. It's it's a lot of work, but, you know, if your standards are good, it's pretty straightforward. So not long after that, I was the centre coordinator. <laughs> um, I'm talking about a matter of weeks. Um, oh, wow. And that's, so... the, that's the quickest promotion I think I've ever heard of. <laughs> Well, I'd been looking to get out of nursing for quite some time. The shift's a murder on a young family. <laughs> and so um, about a year later, or less than a year later, um, the director, Diana, retired for family reasons. And so I became the director of the centre. Curtin's 133-place centre in Western Australia. It's on the Curtin University campus. And... I had a lot of extraordinary people incredibly generously help me learn about early education and care and spent quite a bit of time, I hope, learning the ropes. And when I heard about a conference that was coming up, we'd been doing some tinkering at the centre. It's a very large centre with, uh, I think, nine rooms from memory and... We had two zero-to-one nurseries by that stage and we trialled the difference between one-to-four staff child ratio in one room and one-to-three staff child ratio in another room to figure out how that might work. Conducting and, research as you're going, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, it was just this extraordinary opportunity. We did some other tinkering in and around the centre. We had a, a, um, a career structure for the educators and we had a thing called beginning educator an educator and an advanced practitioner levels with different levels of pay and so i we were doing this research and it was a whole of team effort and we were finding our way together and making lots of mistakes and 
and having, having lots of successes and fun along the way. And um, I heard about this thing called ECA or Early Childhood Australia and they were having a conference in Hobart. And I thought, damn it, it's about time we told everybody what we were doing here. So I submitted a paper uh, and to my surprise, it got accepted. And I thought, oh, dear God, I have to write the paper now. <laughs> so we, we got together and we workshopped a paper. Uh, I think from memory, it was called something along the lines of um, uh, how to keep your staff sane or something like that. Um, and it was about altering staff to child ratios with the staff, working out the new ways the team would work together and seeing if that enriched their relationships with children. But also what I thought was incredibly important, their relationships with each other. And I stood up at the conference as nervous as hell because, hey, this wasn't my original sector. I'm from nursing, as I said, and I'm actually a theatre nurse. Oh, I was back then. And so I stood up and I looked up and there was a room full of people, including two federal ministers, which really didn't help my nervous condition, let me tell you. <laughs> so I thought, I'll oh, sod it. They're in the room. Um, I will give it a shot. You know, what can happen? You know, no one's going to hit me. You know, <laughs> if they get cross at me, what the hell? So I spoke about the centre and I spoke about advocacy and wanting better for early childhood educators and wanting um, staff to want to stay in the sector and want to grow a career. And I meandered into talking about our career structure and and at that time, there were some significant funding issues and there were two people who were signing the cheques in the audience. So <laughs> I had my five cents worth on that as well. And it worked. Um, I, no, we didn't get any changes in funding, but it created a network of people who were like-minded to talk to. I had lots of people get in touch afterwards. And so I thought, oh, maybe I... Maybe I am at home in this sector. Maybe people understand what, I, what I'm saying. So I thought, oh, well, I'll get involved. So I got more involved in a couple of sector organisations and then I got invited onto a government committee to review the Child Services Act in Western Australia at the time. And it was extraordinary. Um, I was exposed to thinking I'd never been exposed to. I got to talk to people that who inspired and energised what I was doing. And not long after, I was working for the department. Um, and my first job was to help review early childhood legislation. And I was passionate about consulting with people and got to love working with legislation, which, yes, does make me one of the three technically most dull people in Australia. <laughs> there might be, but, I, think, I think two of them are on this podcast right now, Tori. Uh, yeah, you know, I had suspected you might say that. But, um, yeah, got involved and then we, we amended that act and a couple of sets of regs and we wrote a whole new set of regulations just for rural and regional early childhood to make um, things clearer and easier and far more... Well, it was written more for their perspective. Um, and then all of a sudden, the Early Years Learning Framework and the National Partnership Agreement came along. And 
I kind of woke up one morning. Well, actually, I was asked to go to a meeting in Canberra. And I walked into the room and they said, right, there's going to be three committees. There's going to be, you know, professional committee um, stand for the standards and the learning framework, that sort of thing. There's going to be a legislation project group and there's going to be an infrastructure project group. And I was on the legislation project group and thus begun how we wrote the National Quality Framework um, with a whole team of people, lawyers, early childhood people, some extraordinary people, including one gifted, gifted person from Queensland whose name was Therese, who has sadly since passed. Um, and we, we took the standards step by step by step and over a couple of years, nutted out the Act and then the regulations. And it was so much fun because I'd get to fly over there or spend hundreds of hours on teleconferences. <laughs> and I'm up for a chat, as you know. <laughs> and um, then we, I, I got to fly back and say, OK, our next thing we're talking about is X, Y or Z. And I would, you know, get into meetings and talk to peaks and talk to individuals and at some stages even just drive past a centre and, oh, I think I know that director. I'll go and talk to her or him. Um, and we pieced it together piece by piece by piece until we got the National Quality Framework. And then we were implementing it. And I, I still remember I was in Parliament when um, sitting at the table down the centre when the legislation went through in Western Australia. And because of a whole bunch of constitution and other reasons, Western Australia has to put legislation through slightly after everybody else because they have to tinker with it in a certain way. And so that happened and um, there were a few of us sitting at the centre table with the minister answering all those questions. And then Parliament took the vote and, you know, those who are recognised as strangers in the House have to leave while Parliament goes back to doing its business. And as I walked out the door, um, the vote happened and I burst into tears because it was this extraordinary passage from when we were doing the old childcare services act here people saying there's not enough information in it there's not enough detail in it it calls its child care workers it calls its child care it's not professional etc 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 to knowing that the foundations it wasn't perfect but the foundations of a profession had just been passed in parliament and in a small way i was a part of it i, I sobbed all the way to the car <laughs> it's totally, totally understandable, Doreen. I've got to say, I'm—I mean, I'm a huge uh, NQF, uh, you know, um, evangelist, and we, you know, a bit part of my role is to uh, sort of run workshops and presentations on a whole range of mm. early childhood education uh, topics. And I start every single workshop. I think people who go to multiple ones are now pretty sick of it, but it's basically a we're going right back saying here's the NQF here's the particular area we'll be focusing on we're talking about why the NQF is there and how fantastic mm -hmm. it is and as if and if all you sort of hear is moaning and whinging about how much regulation and red tape uh, there is it, like you said it's not perfect but it's such a the way it talks about children the way it talks about educators the way it talks about learning is it's incredible when you look at how paralyzed and how difficult politics is now that that got passed you know about 10 years ago it is it's it's so, it's so worthy of celebration and and bursting into tears no shame there Doreen. <laughs> 
Well, I, I remember back when I was nursing and I was a student nurse back a long time before you were born, Liam. And I, uh, that's where you're supposed to laugh, by the way. Um, <laughs> I was on mute. I did laugh my head off, but I was on mute. <laughs> Um, but I was in nursing and I was a student nurse and um, I was a, a student nurse delegate um, in Tasmania and uh, vice president of the state students of nursing unit for the Nurses Federation. And I got sent to this meeting in Melbourne about national stuff. That was literally my brief. You've got to go to a meeting in Melbourne and you have to vote for the national stuff. <laughs> and I thought, well, hey, I'm getting a trip to Melbourne and I'm going to get to meet some more really interesting people and um, get involved in something that I think might be really interesting. So I'm in. So we went to Mooney Ponds. This um, There's a race course, um, I think Mooney Valley, I think it's called, in Melbourne. And there was a huge meeting of registered nurses from all over the country. And they were voting on national standards and national rates of pay. And did they want to go to a degree qualification um, up from the diploma that they, they had currently? And did they want to be declared as professionals in the community? And I thought that was a very, very good idea and got involved <laughs> in that. And it took a couple of years to unfold. And by then I'd followed the sun to Western Australia to thaw out. <laughs> and um, I'd got a job with the Nurses Federation in Western Australia and we had uh, a very large amount of um, professional activity, including closing a range of hospitals, um, to tell the government that enough was enough. We were a profession. Now, I'd ask anybody who's listening this one particular question, would you dare walk up to a registered nurse now and say, I don't believe yours is a profession? And it, of course you wouldn't. And I think that's where we're at now with early and middle childhood. We're in that massive transitional period. And it's like the National Quality Framework was a part of that sowing of the seeds. And we're transitioning and growing at an extraordinary rate. But sometimes we forget that we're actually transitioning and growing. Mm. Sometimes we think, oh, my God, it should be perfect now. And, of course, it's not going to be perfect no. now. We're only six years in, for heaven's sake. It took nursing 12. Yeah, and we're the, and so, we're the trailblazers of this. That's what I always sort of tell people is, you know, people are going to look back on this this rollout period, you know, 2012 to 2020 particularly, and the, the people and educators and, and leaders who worked in this time as the as the – as the trailblazers, look, it's probably a good segue, Doreen, to talk about uh, the primary topic we wanted to talk to you about today, which is your work with the Educational Leaders Association, which is where I, you're, you're one of that select group of people, Doreen, that I know mainly from social media, so Twitter and Facebook, and I've never actually met in person, but that's how I met uh, Lisa and Leanne and all these other people. But uh, people may be familiar with the Educational Leaders Association, very uh, prolific on uh, Facebook particularly, um, and, and you do some really incredible work there, Doreen. I've always been um, amazed by uh, both the, the output in terms of quantity, but also the the really uh, interesting questions and, and topics you pose. But before we get there, you know, to, Doreen, tell, tell us about the Educational uh, Leaders Association, um, what it is, uh, where did it come from, and I guess, you know, what, what its goal is from your point of view. Okay, so the Educational Leaders Association is an association. It's a large, large group of people, but it's a new type of association. 
It is a group of people who um, got together in um, Western Australia a couple of years ago. And in fact, there were two groups of people who got together separately, didn't know about the other group. And we wanted to start something for educational leaders because there was this extraordinary role being, um, you know, described in the National Quality Framework, but not much more at that stage than a description of a role and a requirement to have one. And people were struggling. They were they were left so much latitude with the National Quality Framework to tailor it to their own workplace that it was almost so difficult to know where to start. So we started this little group and then within a couple of weeks found out that someone else, Ralph Southall um, and Jenny Lynch, um, uh, Ralph is still with us. Ralph's actually the president of Educational Leaders Association. And um, they'd started a group. And so, of course, we did the, oh, my God, we can't have this. Let's get together. And we held a couple of meetings and then decided we were going to hold a forum um, and uh, a local organisation called Child Australia helped us out with that forum. And about 130 educational leaders came together in one room. And it was it was like way back when at Many Valley Ways course, when nurses voted to um, be a profession and have all of those markers of a profession. It was exactly the same feel. It was inspiring and it was cohesive and unified and we declared we wanted to have an association but we wanted to define our own role and we wanted people to start looking at educational leadership from from exactly that perspective educational leadership in early and middle childhood and stop trying to impose concepts or constructs of leadership that were little more than reworked school leadership or in one bad case reworked retail leadership that professional practice leadership is different. And yeah, I hear you shudder, and I, I did too at the time. Um, the Educational Leadership Association is a testament to the fact that pre professional practice leadership is a very different thing. It is a professionals leading professionals. And so there are, you know, 13 to 14,000 educational leaders around the country who are all figuring out that the main way that they're working is not just knowing all about what they need to know about professionally, i.e. the national standards, the frameworks, etc., etc. They need to know about adult learning techniques. They needed to know how to bring information into their service or centre and get that information into the heads of their educators working with the educators because they're adults and professionals in their own right and must be respected as such. So we knew we had new perspectives and we knew we had new ways of thinking and not a lot of people were listening at that stage, with the exception of obviously um, Rhonda from Asequa and uh, a couple of others. But most people were saying things to us like, no, 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 it's a bit of management and a bit of leadership. And, you know, that used to set us all off to giggles um, <laughs> because it is so different. It is what clinical nurse specialists in nursing have found, what level three teachers in, and um, advanced practitioners in teaching have found, what leading social workers have found. When you are a professional practice leader, life is very different and the skills that you need are very different and the way that you work and think becomes very different. So I started having the privilege of meeting monthly with a group of educational leaders 
And then Ralph and an educational leader and centre director named Sally Whittaker, who's at a, a, a stunningly beautiful service in Perth, um, they said, oh, I think we need to communicate with more educational leaders. Let's have a Facebook page. And I thought, oh, God, another social media platform. Oh, no. <laughs> and um, two days later, um, I wrote a small piece for it and it got a really good response. Um, we thought, well, you know, there's no art. There's rarely any art. Um, it's three to 500 words and it's usually delivered every morning. So being in Western Australia and in a completely different time zone, um, I get up at around 4.30 in the morning and upload. Uh, I'm one of those annoying morning people. Upload. Um, that's that's very early, Doreen. <laughs> it's quiet here. Um, but also I get much better internet. <laughs> I get terrible, terrible internet oh, no. at my house. Um, so um, I upload the piece in the morning um, so that Ed leaders hopefully can grab a coffee or a cuppa on the way to work, sit down and take 10 minutes to read it and hopefully feel connected and joined up and feel that at least something small in it resonates. And then something really odd started to happen. Um, I started hearing from people. <laughs> And educational leaders started saying, you know, through direct messaging or my email address or the Ed Leaders Association email address or at meetings, started saying, can I just tell you about what we've been up to? And I started collecting stories. And over the last um, year and a half, we have about 600 stories that we've um, uploaded or we have shared in one way, shape or form. We've shared about 45 new type of resources to help ed leaders think with all the noise around them sometimes it's hard to think and we have started talking about the advocacy that ed leaders um, actively engage in even if they don't call it advocacy themselves and it started to grow and now we have more than four thousand people in our community who get a micro blog every morning um, which says lots of different things um, but essentially what it says every morning is, hey, you're not alone. I know that there's probably only one of you in your service. Sure, you may job share, but usually there's only one of you. About 11,000 ed leaders work alone. Um, and you're not alone. We're all out here with you and for you. And then I started getting invitations to go and talk to people. And so did Ralph. And... Um, the invitations that are coming from other states and territories and I'm a consultant. I left the department um, about six, no, about 12 months after the National Framework came in because I thought it would be really impolite to advocate for a law, which I did when I was back in the sector, help write a law, which I did at the department. If I didn't go and experience the law, I thought that would be the height of bad manners. So um, I wanted to go out and see if it actually worked. Um, so I went out and worked as a director in a centre under the National Framework for a while and ran a centre in a notch for six months. And then I started doing some consulting work with an organisation and now I'm an independent consultant, which means I travel. So I travel and I do an Ed Leaders event um, as well as doing my own work um, as I travel around the country. And we have small groups starting in on the Gold Coast in Brisbane, Newcastle, Sydney, um, there's interest in a group in Tasmania. There's certainly a small group started in Melbourne. 
and it's starting to grow. But the thing that connects us is that we don't have meetings which say mover and seconder and all this. We have these really extraordinary meetings and the secret to it is to run a meeting the way people always want a meeting to be run but to, we're too frightened to ask. So we have a curriculum clinic where people bring along curriculum questions and we work on them together. It's a safe place to work and we talk at a higher level. So it is about how you can get information into educators so that they can have a, a higher quality curriculum, if you pardon the language, um, or so that they can try a new innovation or they can get feisty with something that's really challenging and interesting. So we run curriculum clinics um, in a safe environment. Um, we only ever allow anyone to speak positively. There's no negativity allowed. And we give everyone a guarantee of confidentiality. So if you come in and talk at a meeting, no one's allowed to go and say, well, at their centre, they're doing this. That's not what we do. You might have noticed in the uh, microblog on the, the Facebook page each morning, we almost never mention where we have the ideas come from. There's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, everybody wanted to focus on the ideas and not, well, let's just say there are a lot of services around who get a lot of congratulations and it's hard-earned and well-deserved, but there are a lot of services around who are doing similar things who never get any congratulations. So we wanted to level the playing field and focus on the work rather than giving someone a marketing edge. But on top of that, we wanted people to understand that sometimes ed leaders want to share, but their employer won't allow it. They want it to be commercial, the knowledge to be commercial property or to give them the edge. Sometimes people are tentative with an idea. I, I, I was in conversation with an ed leader from Tasmania, an extraordinary young woman. He came up with the simplest tool and resource, and it's coming online in the next couple of weeks. Um, and... She direct messaged me about nine times hinting <laughs> that she might have been onto something, but she was a bit nervous and she didn't want anybody to say anything negative about it because it would break her heart. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I told her that. And it took me weeks to convince her <laughs> that it genuinely was amazing and that she was an extraordinary young talent. Um, and I hear that so often. I, I think, it, Liam, it is because when we took this step into professional life, we forgot that it takes quite a long time to build professional resilience and professional identity and to feel secure in that. When I was a theatre nurse, I would go in, I would pull my uniform on, go up to theatre, put the gown on, the gloves on, get my instruments out and, you know, hand the knife over, so to speak. And I'd pulled all those professional barriers on as I as I'd got closer to my work. It was part of my identity. And um, we haven't given educators and educational leaders the skills to develop their own professional identity. And But many are, don't get me wrong, I know that many are. But so many are so nervous. So... We spend a lot of time encouraging, coaching, mentoring and supporting at Ed Leaders Association. 
Um, and we're spending a lot of time developing and testing resources. We market test everything. I, I call <laughs> us the Woolworths of the profession. We have our, our testing squads around, and we've just recruited a couple of new testers to try some things out. Um, and it's a collegiate collective effort, and it's really something quite special and quite extraordinary. It's totally not-for-profit, and we'd like you to join to fund us, okay? So if you're listening and you want to join, get onto our website. This advertisement was brought to you by Doreen Bly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, and uh, absolutely happy to uh, to market that. But, um, I mean, it, it is – and look, I'm not an educational leader. I obviously uh, work with, with a few, um, and it is – and I, look, I probably shared some. I probably still share some of your terror, Doreen, about some of the social media groups out there, and some of them feel like you have to sort of uh, hunt around for the diamonds amongst some fairly, uh, you know, terrible conversations. You know, the the ELA, and particularly your posts each day, are just really great. Um, uh, always professionally focused and always focused on upholding the role of the educator. Uh, obviously, particularly educational leader, but educators. In general, so Doreen, you, you look as you've said, you've you've been doing this for quite a while. You've been really fortunate uh, to to travel and speak with educational leaders around Australia. There's probably a lot of people who want your job, Doreen, to be honest. But um, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's full. It's it's taken up at the moment. But you know, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges facing educational leaders around Australia right now? I know mm-hmm. we sort of said that it, you know it's it's a new role. We're still sort of figuring it out. But is 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 that the, is that the biggest challenge, or there are other things facing ed leaders at the moment? Um, Oh, look, I think that the newness um, means that we haven't stopped and paused and reflected on how far we've come and how much we've achieved. But we also haven't stopped, paused and reflected on what the gaps are as well. I think that we need to do that. And in fact, that's our next project uh, at the Educational Leaders Association after the Review Your Service project that we're running through the Facebook microblog at the moment. Um, the stop, pause and reflect about what do we need next is incredibly important because we need the voices of educational leaders telling us what their challenges are. But so far, we did a um, pilot survey recently and the challenges that ed leaders themselves are telling us now, this is not coming from academics and it's not coming from peaks. This is coming from the guys on the floor, so to speak. Um the, the 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 primary challenge is that they are so misunderstood and that there are so many interpretations of what an educational leader or a professional practice leader is or should be doing. Yet there are also, on the other side of the scale, so many generalities that there are so many people making their own meaning that it is different to hone it down. And I was on a teleconference recently where we said the biggest thing that we have to do next or we think we have to do next, we need to check with the ed leaders again, is redefine the position and define it much more carefully and much, much more closely. Um, And have ed leaders involved from the ground up and build that definition in their image, not in the image that someone might want to impose on them. So um, being understood, and nobody understands me, being understood is is certainly the biggest challenge. Um, in practical terms, and I like to talk in practical terms, um, some of the biggest challenges are not enough hours to do the role, unfunded hours to do the role, lack of clarity around the job description that is um, needed for the role, lack of clarity around qualifications for the role, 
and then the lack of a budget, a damn budget, so that they can say, yes, I can take Katie or Paul off the floor for an hour to do some mentoring with them. Um, that is such a big issue. R rural, remote and regional educational leaders, the isolation is compounded because not only are they suffering from the isolation you would expect of a professional in some of those areas, but they are the only one in town and that can be really complex. Yeah. I... Especially as most of them were promoted off the floor. Yeah, that's and right. And that's hard. Yeah, and I think as well, I mean, this is another uh, really appalling symptom of the loss of federal professional development funding, so the ending of the professional support coordinators. And uh, even though it was strange and bizarre and not the way you would do PD funding, the, the Long Day Care Professional Development Fund, so both of those are wound up now. And, and, and look, neither of those fundings, uh, funding streams were specifically targeted educational leaders, but I know they were they were often a great resource for exactly what you're talking about, budgeting for uh, for cover, for ed leaders to go to um, conferences, workshops, seminars. Uh, it's a real shame that that's not available now. Um, look, it is. I totally agree with you, Liam. But the, the other thing about... Um, I, I mourn the loss of that funding in a way because, um, and we said at another meeting, here's a funny thing. Um, we had a lot of ed leaders in our last national survey tell us that they would quite often forego going to PD, funded PD, so they could send their staff. Hmm. And the other thing that came up at that meeting was, goodness me, what if we had spent a defined portion of that money on the ed leader and given the ed leader all the skills to take all of that knowledge into their service, would the knowledge have gained more traction? Would it have been tailored more to the service and less generic? So looking back and reflecting on that, um, apart from our sisters and brothers who were in, in the profession who were unfunded in, under that program, um, there are some things we can learn from it and learning how to fund PD, but learning about the standard of PD that we invest our monies in and the traction and the legacy we look to get from that PD is something that I think the entire profession is now learning. Um, you know, what value am I going to get out of my money and is it going to have traction in the longer term? Does it more closely align with our goals or did somebody just say that this sounds really like fun and we have to use up the money by X date? So there are some challenges on that. I think the biggest challenge that ed leaders are facing at the moment is confidence in themselves. And we're hoping we're contributing to that. That's a fa it's a fascinating topic, Doreen. And um, I don't know if I've got I've got a lot. I mean, I've got some more questions to get through, and I don't want to derail us. But in your last question, when you were talking about that idea of lack of um, confidence and that idea that um, people aren't uh, worried about how ideas are going to be met, or, or just or just not willing to come forward, I think that's a real crippling issue facing the sector. And it doesn't surprise me when you look at. Uh, everything we've had this shift towards professionalism under the national quality framework but that hasn't been met in society by a valuing of of the role so there hasn't been you know a win on on pay equity which i think needs to happen and there hasn't been a, just a general idea that uh in the community there hasn't been this big campaign around we're not childcare workers anymore we're early childhood educators so when you have the sort of everyone outside the four walls of your center sort of not really actually seeing you as, as professional uh, in, in their role, it doesn't surprise me that people are sort of nervous about 
about coming forward? Oh, look, I agree. I, look, um, I was in Newman. I had the privilege to go into a service in Newman. I've been there several times, um, which is in the Pilbara in the far northwest of Western Australia. So if you take a line to Sydney and then swing that pencil round in a straight line, you get kind of uh, to the north of Australia. You kind of get where I'm, I'm talking about. And a young educator um, came up to me and she said, oh, so glad you're here. Come and have a look at my room uh, while you're waiting for so-and-so. I was waiting for the leader to finish with a parent. And uh, so I went into her room and the first thing that struck me when I walked into the room was that there was an original copy of her qualifications beautifully framed that was the first thing that I saw when I walked into the room. And I commented on it immediately and she said, oh, for heaven's sake, Dorian, how can we expect people to recognise us as professionals if we don't shout about our qualifications? Okay, so that 19-year-old taught me one of the biggest lessons <laughs> of last year. She had extraordinary pride in her qualification, as she certainly should have. And... I, it was a thrill to be in her room and it was a thrill to be working with somebody who had done such deep thinking about what it, what the problem of not being recognised as a professional meant to her and what she could do about it. Mm. And she was on for doing something about it and putting the qualifications up and drawing all new parents' attention to her qualification. She said, Doreen, I tell them my name, I tell them where the room is and then I tell them I'm qualified and I show them the document. And uh, I mean, look, I could have hugged Good her. Good on her. And she said, no, it's a matter of routine here. And uh, she said, how on earth are we going to tell people in the community we're professionals if we don't stop hiding what it means to be a professional? And I, I thought she's given me so much to think about. Good on her. Uh, about what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be carrying ourselves and how um, in her eyes now yes society and government absolutely have a role to play in recognizing us for what we do and i think we're seeing much more of that now than we ever have but we have a lot we can do ourselves really simple straightforward practical strategies we can start saying excuse me um it's not just my photo that's going up near the front door with my room title which says room leader koala room or whatever um my photo will only go up if you put my qualification up and not she's got a diploma in but my actual qualification it's a great idea i love it um, I think the other thing that I have learned going around the state, and I learned this from in the far southwest, which is I'm sad to report um, the winemaking region of Australia um, and is such a fun place to visit. Um, <laughs> but in one centre there, um, they every in every single document they send out, so if they send a newsletter home to parents or an email or a Facebook post, they put their qualification after their name. So if Katie Smith, Diploma Early Childhood, sends you an email, Katie Smith, Diploma in Early Childhood, is proudly sending you an email. And not just Kate or Katie. It's all about sending those messages. And this is the, the beauty of listening to 
um, educators and educational leaders for their ideas rather than us thinking we have all of the answers because we bloody well don't have all the answers. <laughs> and the also answers just, are out And also just the idea that, that that's advocacy. So I think, I think a lot of people get tripped over. They think advocacy has to be about you know, uh, protesting or writing letters to, to ministers and, and that, that stuff all, is all really important. But that's that's critical advocacy for, for the profession of the sector. It's going directly to the community. community. It's going directly to families. Uh, they're, they're incredible advocates, those people. Good on them. They're natural advocates. And I, I, I learn so much from them. I run advocacy classes as well. And we talk about the different levels of advocacy and the different ways of speaking up and speaking up within your sphere of interest, not trying to to speak up on something you don't know anything about. Learn more, but speak up on what you are interested in and passionate about and understand that speaking up is actually a lot of fun and it's something you can be really proud of. Um, I went to the um, walkout day in Perth um, I wasn't there for very long um, at the gathering in Northbridge, which is um, uh, the plaza in Northbridge is in a stunning restaurant district in the middle of Perth. And I do hope that the West Australian Tourism Commission is listening to all these adverts because um, <laughs> I'd like a cut um, as a fundraiser. But I went there and I looked around at all these advocates and there's one educational leader there and she's at every educational leaders association meeting and I just wanted to go over and throw my arms around her and say, yes. Um, it, it, it was not an enormous gathering, but, you know, back when we first started advocacy and nursing, there weren't enormous gatherings. They're not perfect up front. They grow. Yeah. Advocacy grows and we've got to stop thinking, Oh, it was only, you know, 672 services, not 13,000, excuse me, 600-odd services or 3,000 services or whatever. It's all advocacy. And look at the press. Look at the yeah, media absolutely. that people got because of it. And this is people working within their sphere, in their expertise. But the thing that I teach about advocacy is don't go negative. <sighs> be If you are going to say we are a profession and we want to be professional, mm you have to project that. So you've got to be positive. So, Doreen, this wasn't on my list of questions I, I prepared you for, so I'm going to oh, throw no, you on a question. without notice. Question without oh, notice. So, but um, I'm fascinated by the idea. Like, Doreen, what, what, do you think it's important that it, and I think I know your answer to this, but I'd like you to expand on it a tad. Um, do you think it's important for, for educational leaders to be advocates? And I should preface this by saying, it's interesting talking to people. I don't think people often make that connection. So I don't think educational leaders themselves or uh, nominated supervisors or approved providers who worked with educational leaders don't actually see advocacy as a key part of that role. Uh, it sounds to me like you think it is actually a, a key part of that role, if I'm not misinterpreting you. But do you want to talk a bit about that connection between educational leaders and advocacy? Um, first thing, um, I have... Um, I, I declare a bias. I, I have a real problem with jargon um, and it gets me into a lot of trouble because um, I get a lot of accusations that I don't speak in the language of the profession. Um, but I learned a long time ago in nursing that a true professional speaks with clarity and describes clearly to the non-professional or to anyone in the community 
what they're doing. And as long as you're speaking in clear language, you are speaking as a professional. So I don't use a lot of jargon. So I don't say that advocacy is part of a role because that means so many things to so many different people. It's so easily misunderstood. Yeah. Um, speaking and communicating about the role is part of the role. And that happens in different ways for different peoples at different points in time. Um, speaking and communicating about the role, about um, getting better support for their educators to learn more about um, middle childhood mental health in outside school hours care, for example. And speaking up and saying, we need to do this course or we need this information or we're really worried about this child is all what would traditionally be called advocacy. But when you tell people that um, that communicating that they're doing is acting as an advocate, they start to settle down about the phrase or about the language of advocacy and start to understand that, hang on, I'm a natural at this. I do this all the time because they do do it all the time. Every time they ask for new resources or every time they say to a parent, no, 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 um, I, I really need you to sign this, do this. You're being an advocate in some small way. Yeah. And I think we start to put advocates and sector leaders up on a milk crate because they speak up. Um, yet I go into a service. Oh, I was in a service down south recently um, in a, a stunning little um, southwestern town and... Um, uh, known for its blues festival, and you know who I'm talking about, don't you? Um, <laughs> um, and this educator came in and she said, no, no, she came back after lunch. And she said, no, 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 hold the door open, hold the door open. So I, I dutifully held the door open. And two chaps from the local Mitre 10 came in holding uh, a wardrobe that they had repaired and painted for the service. And um, I said, can I hear the story behind the wardrobe because, you know, I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. And they just sort of laughed and said, well, um, she came and asked. She said the children really, really needed a wardrobe um, because they needed to hide their coats, their Wellington boots. They needed to um, put their art things away and the old wardrobe needed repair. And I turned to her and I said, great advocacy. And she sort of looked at me and she said, was that advocacy? Mm. And I said, mm. you're damn right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, and yeah. sometimes we tend, generalisations tend to be put up on the milk crate with the loud people rather than the true label of advocacy being given to educators and educational leaders who every day advocate what they're doing not every educational leader or educator needs to write to the minister exactly in, yep. in fact it tends to irritate ministers if they get too many letters <laughs> you know those old form letters people used to do and the last thing you want to do is irrita irritate your minister um really they need to tell the story of great practice the story of the wardrobe has been told to two ministers yeah that's wonderful yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Uh, and I think one of the things I've, I talk with a lot about people is that uh, whether you call yourself an advocate or not, you're actually advocating every single day just by the way you conduct yourselves and by the way you talk with families and by the way you talk with colleagues, uh, you're advocating whether you know it or not. So you may as well make sure it's good advocacy is always my advice. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> 
So the, the thing that really surprises me um, is that people uh, people never let you down. You go into a t- I go into towns. Um, I think I did. Um, I don't know. I think it was at least a dozen trips east last year, and um, as many trips around Western Australia, so another dozen and. Um, people all over are doing extraordinary things. They are struggling. There's no doubt they are struggling. Um, I had an educator in um, the Midwest of Western Australia um, bring me her copy of the Early Years Learning Framework and say, well, we've got you here because we want you to tell us what this means. And I said, okay, so um, have you read it? Yeah, we've tried a couple of times and, and here's our notes from it and we just don't understand what, what they're getting at. And and I've, I mean, we've all heard people who struggled with the earliest learning framework documentation um, in different ways because they, you know, we've got hundreds of different courses in our profession, hundreds of different backgrounds. We're incredibly diverse. Of course, they didn't all get EYLF lessons. And of course, they haven't all been around exactly at the right time to get EYLFPD. So there is still a lot of explaining and talking to do. And we sat down and we worked through the EYLF in plain English. And they talked about how left out they felt because they didn't understand. And they were ashamed when they went to PDs because they didn't quite understand what was going on. Yet when it was in plain English, they not only understood perfectly, but they could show me elements of their practice that perfectly reflected what we wanted That's and I, I I think we we go on so much about being an inclusive profession forgetting that jargon and generalizations and assumptions about people exclude yeah I had a I had an ex-colleague used to refer to it as a secret educators business used to uh, and that's right yeah. yeah yeah i love that i'm gonna use it. i'm gonna steal that okay, <laughs> it's yours right now. i've stolen it oh, from that person so I'm, I'm, i feel i feel <laughs> okay, perfectly well, comfortable giving it to we you won't, we won't tell <laughs> um but you know what have we done i mean seriously what have we done that people feel ashamed of speaking up at a pd because they don't quite understand what others are going on about yeah yeah, it's it. Yeah, it's it's not a not a nice story. Heartbreaking. It's yeah. heartbreaking. Well, so that's what Ed Leaders is all about. Ed Leaders Association is unbelievably positive, and it is unbelievably supportive. And we will eventually get ministers coming along. We've the current minister in Western Australia came to some Ed Leaders Association events, um, and gets it and understands it. Um, as does our Minister for Education. So Simone McGurk and Sue Ellery um, get it and they understand the objectives of Ed Leaders Association. And slowly other ministers around the country are getting on board as well and, and understanding it as well. Um, so that's well, us, that's Ella. That's great. Well, Doreen, I've got one more question for you and then we're going to give out the, the contact info and I absolutely add my encouragement to people to join this fantastic group. But and given you're, a, you're an ex-public uh, servant, Doreen, this will actually be a good question for you. But So, Doreen, <laughs> oh, if, you, if you had complete control of policy and you, you had the year of the minister and the minister was going to do whatever you said and there was no budget restriction on, on anything you could do about this, you can basically do whatever you want in this country for the educational uh, leader role. What you know? What what would you do to support educational leaders specifically, but I guess services in Australia more generally? We're popping you in charge now. 
Oh, well, which is totally appropriate. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, takeover of the profession in the world wasn't on my list till Thursday, but yeah, I'll get started. <laughs> Look, seriously, um, what we need, we need. I, I, I tweeted about it recently um, at some obscene hour of the morning um, because I got quite cross. And That's when what, I tweet too. Yeah, yeah, it, it's amazing, isn't it? It's just such a connectivity. Um, but really, it was what we need is a comprehensive children's and fam- children and family policy across the entire country. And under that child and family policy across the entire country, there will be subsets of policies, and it will be around all of the stages of a child's life, starting before they're conceived, right through till after they're twenty-five. And it will be seamless and it will, we will pass information about the child, the neonate, as the child, the baby that grows into the toddler, the kindy, the primary school, the high school, the before school, the after school, the outer school, the community groups. We will all work together and we will be funded to understand each other as different professions and groups. We will not be competitive against each other for tenders and programs and projects. We will not guard our knowledge as though it is power or as though it is the ticket to the next government tender. We will share and we will share equally and openly and we will create a seamless childhood for our children so that in that environment, hell, if you created that environment for children, imagine how respected educators would be in Australia today and imagine what would be available to educational leaders as they lead their teams. So if I had unlimited money, I actually wouldn't need any money for that, would I, Liam? No, because that's dead that's, that's really cheap. That's making a decision and using the resources that you have at hand. Policy resources are actually quite straightforward in being retargeted. Nobody needs an external consultant to do this. Oh, God, I just did myself out of work. Ah. Um, But nobody needs external consultants or large accounting firms to come in and say it's possible if you do this, you do that. What we need is the will to do it and the desire to do it. Oh, there are about 50 50 reports and strategies and plans for how this could work. The idea that that, that we just don't know how to make this work is is, we're well past that. It is about the will to do it. Can I jump in and say uh, some recommended reading for everybody who's talking and thinking about policy at this point in time is go and have a look on the CoLab website, C-O-L-A-B, from the Telethon Kids Institute, Um, And they have a declaration for Australian children and young people. And it is well worth a read. Absolutely well worth a read. We'll include a link Uh, for that for sure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so what's Ella going to be doing in the next couple of months? We're finishing our series over the next couple of weeks on how to review your service as an educational leader. And then we're going into let's stop take a breath, figure out how far we've come and figure out what the gaps are and what we need next. And so that's our next big project. That's great. Really fitting in with that idea of self-assessment and continuous improvement, which is such a fundamental part of the NQF. We're all really good at it. 
<laughs> We're just going to use it on ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the tough part. Well, Doreen, so if if we somehow have not convinced people of how valuable and amazing this organisation is, I'm, I'd, I'd be a bit concerned. But assuming uh, people wanted to be bashing down your door to, to, to join this group, where do people need to go? How can they get involved? Okay, so um, jump onto Facebook and search for Educational Leaders Association. And you'll see it, it's got a lovely multicolored motif on the top with lots of keywords and a red and black little logo in the left hand corner, Educational Leaders Association. Like us, follow us, and then jump on the links onto our website, which is currently in a rebuild phase at the moment, but it's still all there and it has a member section. So join us, pay the fee. And um, you can still get some of our resources if you're not, but we'd like you to help us out because we're not for profit. And for your membership, you get one free PD uh, per year. Um, you get lots of resources that are not, allo- not available on the Facebook page and you get private coaching. It's a pretty um, good so deal. Everybody's in- everybody is entitled to one private coaching session. That's great. So it is It is something really positive and really special. Wonderful. Well, So come and join us, everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> that's my strong recommendation as well. Doreen, thank you so much for your time uh, today, particularly on such short notice. Everyone get on there, Educational Leaders Association, well worth joining. Um, and if you can find Doreen on, on Twitter uh, as well, which is where I've, I've tracked her down, uh, well worth following <laughs> if you're on, on Twitter as well. But Doreen, thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure. And that's it for another episode. We'll be back next week, hopefully, with all three of us. But until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leanne McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com. And while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.